from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 3rd. Today, bracing for the president's 4th of July celebration, the unintended consequences of two ISIS-inspired murders, and reflections of a White House volunteer. We're going to have a great 4th of July in Washington, D.C. It'll be like no other. Usually, you have a parade during the day, and then in the evening, there are a couple of big events. There's a Capitol Fourth concert, which is performed on the West Lawn of the Capitol with different musicians and an orchestra. That is accompanied by a fireworks display, typically launched by the Lincoln Memorial over the reflecting pool that people see, but often from the end of the mall that's closer to where the concert is taking place. That's Juliet Eilprin, and I'm the senior national affairs correspondent for The Washington Post. And Juliet has been covering this controversial new addition to this year's Fourth of July festivities, what President Trump is calling Salute to America. We're going to have planes going overhead, the best fighter jets in the world, and other planes too. And we're going to have some tanks stationed outside. I think for many people, it is a jarring image, but certainly to the president, it helps symbolize what is great about America. And my sense is that he sees that many of his supporters embrace the tanks. I've gotten feedback from readers who say that they see the tanks as a sign of what is amazing about this country. And the idea of bringing a military display to the National Mall on Independence Day, that's never been done before. It's unprecedented. We have not had a 4th of July celebration like the Salute to America in our history. We have had different points where there have been bigger celebrations on the Mall, including with the Bicentennial in 1976. You've had displays at other times of military hardware, say, in the context of an inaugural back in Dwight D. Eisenhower's day. But to have a combination of this elaborate uh, celebration with a military component is not something that has certainly happened in the modern era. And the fact that the president himself is going to be there and be part of the July 4th celebration is something that we have not seen in years. So the idea for this alternate event where where President Trump will be giving a speech and also having this pretty grand military display. Where did that idea come from? It came from the president himself. He had seen the Bastille Day parade in France in 2017, had been really impressed by it. The Bastille Day parade includes a display of French military might, and this includes procession of soldiers, their tanks. It is a full-on embrace of, of the military in France, and he wanted his own military parade. And what do we know about who is going to be attending this show? That's an interesting question. There is a VIP section for the president's speech on the Lincoln Memorial. That will be composed of cabinet members, staffers from the president's reelection campaign, and other supporters of the president. The White House is giving out those tickets in a number of different ways through the Republican National Committee. They've given them to political appointees within the federal government and so forth. And so the 
crowd that will be seated there as the president will speak will be composed of people who back him and are excited to see him speak. Now, it's interesting to note that at the same time, there are going to be hundreds of thousands of people on the National Mall, like there are every year. And while you'll have plenty of families who are just there to see the fireworks that begin just a little after 9 p.m., you will also have protesters. So that is something that's definitely a departure from the past. We have not usually had demonstrations going on on the National Mall, particularly targeted against the president since we have not had the president participate in this kind of event for years. A number of different kind of groups have raised some concerns with how it's all supposed to go down, right? Like the D.C. Council was saying that they're worried that it's going to cost taxpayers and that having all these tanks go over the mall will damage infrastructure. And then you have the National Park Service that has said that they have to be paying for some of this and that they already have a backlog of other things that they need to get done and they don't really want to spend millions of dollars on this. And then I thought it was curious that even the military had raised some concerns about having to bring out their their military display and and put it on the mall. Yes. I mean, it's worth noting that certainly the D.C. politicians have been very public in their concern about how this will affect the district and, again, the costs that will be incurred by D.C. In terms of the National Park Service, publicly, they are fully supportive of this event. They have talked about what a wonderful celebration it's going to be. And so it's really privately that some Park Service officials, as well as folks who traditionally are friends of the parks and support them, those kinds of advocacy groups have definitely expressed concern. And then in terms of the military, there are a couple of different issues. Certainly, it seems as if the military has gone out of this way to minimize, for example, the involvement of active service members in terms of marching and, again, kind of this idea that that they wanted to have a limit on there will be tanks, but they're going to be stationary. They won't be rolling through the streets, as well as it's worth noting that every single person who will be working on July 4th is going to be working on overtime, so it will cost more. And also, they will not be with their families. For example, the Blue Angels were supposed to have downtime between two different performances. And normally, they would go to Pensacola, Florida, but instead, they will be performing on the National Mall. So there's kind of a whole ripple effect that is triggered by having what certainly sounds like a much more elaborate and impressive show. It seems, in some ways, like a pretty political event. Certainly. That's really one of the primary criticisms of it. And that is what Democratic lawmakers are charging could be a violation of federal rules. One of the things is it will certainly depend on the tone of the president's speech and what he says. And do we know anything about what he's going to say? We don't know yet. It seems like they're certainly working on trying to ensure that it steers clear of political references like to 2020 candidates, to campaign polling. But it's not a campaign speech. Right. However, when the president gets up and speaks, you never know what's going to happen. And more broadly, certainly, there has been a level of polarization that has been injected into what is usually a family-friendly affair that's patriotic and really has been largely divorced from politics in recent years. And what are the implications of having an event like this that is designed to demonstrate military might and also put the president on a certain kind of platform on a day that's supposed to be not political and just a celebration of the history of America. Certainly, that's something that has been raised that, in fact, when you read the Declaration of Independence, it is criticizing the standing army that's been oppressing the American people, namely Britain's army. (laughs) 
And so it has not been as much of a military celebration in the past. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things that we're going to see is how is this ultimately received? How much does it cost? What kind of damage is done to the National Mall? And that may end up determining whether something like this is repeated again. And one of the things that I always think is really interesting to keep in mind and is a wild card is we don't know if it's going to rain. It certainly is predicted to rain at different points. And depending on when those thunderstorms come, that could have a huge impact on whether it's the flight show, whether it's the fireworks, and really could affect to some extent whether this is a success or a failure. Juliet Eilprin is the senior national affairs correspondent for The Post. It was done by those four men in the name of ISIS, but ISIS has never declared responsibility for it. We wanted to know why, and this was actually the beginning of uh, why we why we went, you know, to Morocco and began to dig into it. Late last year, two women from Europe were killed while backpacking in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. Their names were Marin Uland and Luisa Jasperson. Can you just start with each of you saying who you are and what you do? My name is Greg Miller, and I am a national security reporter. My name is Suad McKennett. I'm a national security reporter as well. I've been covering so-called Islamist terrorism since 9-11 from uh, basically the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, or ISIS. I've been covering all these groups. The attack against these two women last December was brutal. And one of the perpetrators captured the whole thing on cell phone video. The men who carried this out were trying to get the attention of ISIS. But ISIS seemed to want nothing to do with them. And Greg and Suwad wanted to understand why. So you have these women. These are women from a, a university in Norway, a part of a larger group that planned travel to Morocco, obviously a very popular tourist destination, particularly for Europeans. They're into the outdoors, and they want to hike in the Atlas Mountains, And at the same time they're planning this trip, you have these guys in Marrakesh who have been following the Islamic State, inspired by the Islamic State, and they are also coming down the home stretch on their own planning. They have cycled through lots of far-fetched ideas for carrying out a terrorist attack, but narrow it down to looking for tourists in the Atlas Mountains. And so you have these two plans, these two different groups of people converging at the same place. So these four men from Marrakesh encounter these two women hikers, and then what happens? So they follow them. They see, one, that they are not traveling with anybody from Morocco. They see that they're traveling alone, just the two of them. They see that they're setting up a tent halfway up the mountain. You know, some some people go up and come back down to the village at the end of the day, but they're going to stay in the mountains in this really remote patch. They follow them. They note where they put the where the women put their tent, and they set up their own tent a uh, hundred yards or so away and start making their plans for what's going to happen that night. While those two young women were sleeping, they sharpened their knives and went up to their tent and um, attacked them. So 
two of the men, uh, each of them beheaded one of the young women and one man was supposed to film both of the beheadings. So why is it that that these men targeted these women and wanted to get it all on camera? So these are guys who spend a lot of time looking in their own cell phones, watching videos from the Islamic State, becoming immersed in this subculture of violence that ISIS represents. And they were trying to replicate that. I mean, they were trying to carry out an attack that they thought would look like what they had been watching. You can actually hear how one of the attackers says, this is for our brother in Syria. So they they believed that they were doing something which the Islamic State would approve of. So they were basically hoping that this would kind of put them on the map or make them attractive as new members of ISIS. Yeah, as we say in the story, their hope was to, to establish themselves to become Islamist heroes, heroes of the Islamic State, sort of part of its apocalyptic army, and that their video would be promoted and distributed across the Islamic State's own propaganda channels. What happened is those guys taped a video where they swore allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, to ISIS. They had created their own Islamic State flag. They used a black T-shirt. So that video was taped as well as the, the video that showed the actual killing. And both of them had been sent through telegram channels to somebody who was supposedly handling their case on behalf of ISIS. That's what they believed. But they also sent the video that showed the killing of uh, Marin and Luisa to different groups, to apparently WhatsApp groups, to a Telegram group they had with, with other members of the cell. And how did ISIS respond to these videos? ISIS never declared responsibility. ISIS never released any of the videos on any of their official in any of their official channels. That particular group was never featured by ISIS. Well, but but why didn't ISIS want to take responsibility for this? Why didn't they just pump it out on their channels and say another act of violence committed by our group. Yeah, so this was one of the core questions for our story, was why? And the reasons are, there are a number of reasons, but they all kind of boil down to a failure by these plotters and this attack to meet, weird as it sounds, certain standards that the Islamic State expects of its followers when they submit videos like this. So some of it was that the production quality was terrible. It was really disjointed. It was dark at night. It was not well lit. It was hard to make out what was happening. And that went into their In this video. So, yeah, because when you think about Islamic State videos, you think about the choreography, you think about the sort of stagecraft of it. I mean, they go to enormous lengths to stage these killings that they carry out. It's horrific, but it's highly orchestrated. This didn't look anything like that, right? And then I think more significantly was who they targeted and how. So these are women. They are pulled out of their sleeping bags in the middle of the night. They are uncovered, right? You see their faces. You see their necks. You see their limbs. They are defenseless. And so Suat and I, in interviews with with experts in this area, we – we, we spoke with officials who told us that they actually looked through the entire catalog of Islamic State execution videos. And there are thousands of executions they've carried out on camera 
Only three have ever involved women Mm -hmm. and never looking like this, never looking defenseless women ambushed or depicted without covering on their faces. So basically this attack is kind of a bad look for ISIS and that's why they didn't want to take responsibility for it. Yeah, you could say that. And we actually also spoke to former members of ISIS and we're also able to reach people who are still members of ISIS. We had access to people who worked for ISIS in the media section. So we talked to them and asked, right, what happened? Why not this video? And people were explaining, I mean, first of all, there were a lot of debates also within so-called jihadist chat rooms about targeting those two women who were, um, as they would describe it, half naked and uh, who were not armed. Um, So it didn't make ISIS look good, if you want to say that. That's at least the feedback we got from them. But even though ISIS never publicly claims responsibility, never shares this video on their major channels, the video still ends up going viral, but in a very different way. Right. So these guys come down from after killing these women. One of the first things they do is as soon as they're in back in cell range coming out of the mountains is send this send this video off via Telegram, via WhatsApp to the part of their network that's going to relay this content to the Islamic State. Right. And the the expectation is that this is going to show up and have a huge impact online immediately. They're just waiting for this to play out. And it doesn't. But it does begin to go viral in several other ways as soon as it surfaces online several days later. And the most startling, unexpected audience for this is the far right in Europe. And this was the second thing that really caught our attention about this story. So they'd failed to, to in their main objective, to impress the Islamic State, to get this video circulated by the Islamic State, and they failed to anticipate where this video was going to be embraced. And this was on the far-right fringes of Europe, white nationalist movements, anti-Islamic movements, and those who were hostile to immigration in Norway, Denmark, and across Northern Europe. And they were sharing these videos because they felt like it proved a point that that white people, that white women are under attack by by Islam, I guess. Yes, and also for their own propaganda purposes, right? To to say, look what uh, Islam is, look what uh, Muslims are doing, how they are going after white women and uh, white men have to rise and defend their wives and their daughters. And so, yes, so one group of hatred that preaches hatred is using the propaganda of another group uh, that uh, is using hatred. And it was very interesting, but also to a certain extent worrying to see how often this video was used by groups who were trying to make a point and and show people a whole religion is is awful and evil. So that was the other very interesting experience for us. And especially when you think about the fact that these four men who who planned this attack, that they had originally been radicalized through these videos that they were watching online, it's just such an unexpected parallel that you have two very different groups of young men who find a way to be radicalized on the internet through the sharing of these terrible, violent videos. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because we often think of these extremes as sort of being isolated and radicalizing themselves in an insular way. When what's happening and what we saw in this story is they're they're feeding off one another. These two extremes are are interacting with one another. This hatred is sort of ricocheting back and forth. They're pointing to the other side, look what they're doing. Now we need to mobilize and and vice versa. And so it escalates because it sort of feeds on itself. It creates this cycle. I think in some cases now we're witnessing violence that might not even happen were it not for this online viewing experience, were it not for the online world. Would these women have been killed if it were not for the prospect of producing a video that they thought that these attackers thought would propel them to fame? I mean, we have a line in the story that says that this, like so many other attacks in this day and age, whether it's school shootings or anything else, was an, was an act of senseless and performative violence, where the performance is, is almost a, the point of it in and of itself, right? It's almost not even political. It's just to make a mark online. I personally also found very disturbing to see how this vicious circle works. How each side is using the other side. So when Christchurch happened, the attacks of Christchurch, jihadist websites used that to um, create hatred against non-Muslims. And when those attacks happened, right-wing extremist groups or the ultra-right would use those attacks on those pictures to create hatred against Muslims. So by the end of the day, what I saw is we are in the midst of a clash where you have the extremes on all sides using the propaganda of each other to create hatred against the people in the middle of it. Suwad McKennett and Greg Miller are national security reporters for The Post. And now, one more thing. A 99-year-old woman who's been volunteering in the White House since the 90s. If you call into the comment line of the White House, I get a ring. Frequently, you'll be on hold because it is staffed by volunteers, and sometimes you have to wait. But when Louise picks up, I said, good morning. This is the comment line. May I have your comment, please? My name is Roxanne Roberts. I'm a feature writer in the style section of the Washington Post. We originally got a tip that there were a number of older women who volunteered in the White House call center. And the person that wrote in said that they thought they were a great story, a kind of nonpartisan devotion to country, a sorority of these older women who had decided that one of the things they wanted to do with their time is volunteer in this way. One of the volunteers, and the only one I spoke to, is 99-year-old Louise Griffin. She has been volunteering at the White House for 26 years. I've worked in almost every department in the social office where they send out uh, invitations to the dinners. I worked in the East um, Wing. I also worked 
at their Christmas um, decorations and um, things like that. And so I had a real good idea of everything. She has worked for the Clintons. She's worked for George W. Bush. She worked for President Obama and now for President Trump. I'm neutral as far as that's concerned. And even on the telephone, I'm neutral. And and uh, sometimes I get calls and the people say, I love to talk to you. You take so much time with them. So I'm going to make you answer a question here. You worked for Clinton, Bush. George W., Obama, and now President Trump. Yes. Mm-hmm. Did you have a favorite president? I can't say that I did. I really can't because I liked them all. I think she had the most affection for Clinton because he's very chatty, always has been, and he would he liked to talk to the volunteers, and he especially liked to talk to Louise. And, um, and I think that she was very touched by that. One day they were having a birthday party for him, and he came over, and at that time I was working in his second campaign, and I had my badge on, and he said, oh, thank you, bless you. And I turned around and said, who do you think you are, the Pope? I mean, that's how you could talk to him. (laughs) Yeah, you could talk to him. What struck me about Louise is that she has decided that she's not going to be torn by politics or ambition. She seems extremely grateful for the life that she's had, and she sees working at the White House as a way of giving back. That first day when I went there and stood on the lawn on the east side of the White House, I said, I can't believe it, that because when I was a child, you didn't go there. And I guess right now you can't. But I remember my mother, when I was about five years old, fixed the Easter basket, and you could go there, but they didn't have the Easter egg roll like they have now. You take your own eggs and roll, roll them down the hill. <laughs> that, that was about it. We all get caught up and we get mad and we have all these political fights with each other and we get heated and call each other names and there are all these calculations. And Louise is just not a calculating person. She is full of gratitude and I found that very touching in a lot of ways. Roxanne Roberts is a features reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in this episode by heading to postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This episode is sponsored by the Aquarius Project podcast from the Adler Planetarium. When a meteor crashed in a great lake, 
these Chicago teenagers. Is this actually going to like go somewhere? Joined forces with scientists. They specialize in asteroids. To find a way to hunt for space rocks. The so-called small bodies of the solar system. 200 feet underwater. It's not impossible. It's There's not a 0% chance. From the Adler Planetarium, the Aquarius Project podcast. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.